This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adam and Teen Energy. On today's show, we talk about election politics, in particular, how U.S. oil and gas companies can mitigate their risks around climate change with elections looming. My two guests, Marty Durbin, the president of the Global Energy Institute at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and Elizabeth Gore, Senior Vice President for Political Affairs at the Environmental Defense Fund are just great and provided a very surprising range of perspectives, but also overlapping potential for the future. This podcast was originally recorded as a live webinar, and you'll hear references to uh, questions from the audience. To learn more about our webinars, previous podcasts, and our work at Adam and Teen, visit our website at energythinks.com. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Here's my conversation with Marty Durbin and Elizabeth Gore. Hello and welcome to our webinar on how U.S. oil and gas companies can mitigate climate risk with elections looming. I'm Tisha Schuler. Adam and Teen Energy has collaborated with the Environmental Defense Fund to bring you this event, which I am delighted to host and moderate. Everyone in this audience is an invited guest. And so you likely know that Adam and Teen Energy is keenly interested in collaborating with oil and gas companies and leaders to future-proof against rising social risk. And what we mean uh, by the term social risk is the combined political policy and community opposition that can materially impede a company's plans and operations. Now today we're in the midst of so many massive disruptions of a scale and a power and an impact um, that, uh, that really are reshaping the world as we know it. So I don't, I don't need to enumerate those for you. And yet another potential seismic shift looms, and it has its own menu of risks, and that is the federal elections in November. And so we wanted to have this event to think about what the outcomes of these elections could mean for you, because the, the best way that I know to mitigate huge risks is to think about the range of options and think about the actions that you can take to best prepare your organization to meet the moment when it comes up. That's what we'll be talking about today with our great guests. You, the participants, are encouraged to be a part of the conversation by asking questions. You can vote questions up and down. This uh, webinar will be later shared as a podcast, so I won't identify the questioners, but other audiences, audience members can see the questions that you've asked. Uh, this event is the second in a series, which my collaborator, Ben, will tell you more about. Those of you who joined us for the first session met Ben Ratner, who leads strategic partnerships with companies for the Environmental Defense Fund. Ben, thanks for uh, sharing this event with me, and please give us your two cents before we kick off today. Well, thanks, Tisha, and thank you all so much for joining uh, EDF and Adam and Teen for this second event in our series. As you know, we're focused on building the partnerships 
and supporting the policies to achieve net zero emissions economy-wide in the US by 2050. And working with colleagues in the energy industry really is an important part of that. And it's something that energizes me and many of us every day. In our last discussion, uh, Michela Della Vigna from Goldman Sachs really described investor-driven ESG as, and these are his words, absolutely at the core of how industry will change through crises with a focus on preparing for climate change. And as some of you may have seen, actually just last week, his team released another report, this one on the green economic recovery. And I was struck by three of Michela's new findings about future investments in the energy industry, about uh, what they describe as the $40 to $80 carbon price for oil and gas projects already implied by today's cost of capital and the importance of regulatory support and carbon pricing. And I think that really brings us to today's conversation, less than 150 days uh, from the election. While the rise of ESG can seem at times like a near certainty, of course, we know uh, the election outcomes are really anything, uh, anything but that. And so I'm very much looking forward to hearing from uh, my colleague Elizabeth, from our colleague Marty, uh, today as we collectively get smarter and get our heads around some ways of thinking about different potential election outcomes and what that could mean uh, for this industry and for our opportunities uh, together to make pragmatic progress and especially looking forward to your questions and the dialogue that follows today. Back to you, Tisha. And um, let's jump in. I, I am delighted to introduce our two guests. Our first is Marty Durbin. Um, Marty is president of the Global Energy Institute at the US Chamber of Commerce. Many of you know him from his previous role as executive vice president and chief strategy officer at API. And prior to that, he also served as the CEO of ENGA. Welcome, Marty. Our second panelist today is Elizabeth Gore, who's Senior Vice President for Political Affairs at the Environmental Defense Fund. Elizabeth has served in many senior positions, including in the US House of Representatives, the Office of Management and Budget, and the US Senate. Elizabeth has also worked in the private sector. So welcome to both Marty and Elizabeth, and I will invite you to, to turn on your cameras and turn off your mute buttons. Um, and I, I will jump in with the first question. Thanks for, thank you both for being here. All right, I'm just gonna make sure we get Elizabeth on. Okay, great. So Marty, you're based in Washington. You have a broad group of constituents as your member companies. Um, when you think about the upcoming ele election, what are the macro trends that you're watching and what are the possible outcomes that you're you're thinking about? Well, uh, thank you, Chris. And first, let me thank you and Ben for the invitation to be here and say how delighted I am to join Elizabeth on on the panel. Uh, we've worked together for a long time, and uh, nice to uh, nice to join up again. Um, uh, I guess to take a broad view on, on on your question here. First, there's no question that the 2020 election has some unique factors and dynamics around it. On the other hand, you know, the business community has always had to prepare for election cycles come around. So there are things you would, regardless of what the 
which election it is. One, one of the factors I think that has to be considered is that, you know, the two-year, four-year, and six-year election cycles that we all have to deal with don't really line up that well with a five-year, 10-year, 20-year, or longer business cycle, you know, depending on the industry you're in. And certainly with oil and gas industry, when you're planning out for 20, 30, and 40-year year cycles here, um, you know, sometimes these election cycles get to be, you know, uh, yeah, just difficult on the alignment side, but clearly they're significant. They're real. They're things that you have to you know, have to deal with. From a broad standpoint, I think that the, what the business community and certainly what the Chamber of Commerce is looking at for the 2020 election, look at the 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 the, the basic scenarios we may see play out. For example, if we have a generally status quo result coming out of November, you know, I, I think the you know. The chances are that we're we're not going to see a very clear federal agenda. Uh, we're we're going to have a lot of gridlock at, at, at the federal level, and we're likely to see a lot more activity at the state level, especially in blue states. On the other hand, if you saw if you see a split result with perhaps you know White House uh, White House flipping, uh, but the Senate staying, I, I would suggest there's still a, a, a strong possibility of a gridlock at the federal level. Um, but but some more more activity and, and I think states again will continue to be uh, uh, active. Coming back to the state issue as we go on here. On the other hand, if we do see a democratic trifecta, if you will, it likely means that we're going to see a much more aggressive agenda, both on a legislative and uh, and and regulatory uh, angle as well at the federal level. That may hold back states for being too too aggressive or more as, as aggressive as they would be again it's not going to stop them um but i think there are two factors that we've got to kind of keep in mind regardless of the of the outcomes here and one if, if we do see that trifecta or any democratic gains that we do we do see are, are likely to be moderate democrats so how how far to one side the agenda can go is, is yet to be seen but you know we, we know from the results of 2018 Fairly moderate group of Democrats came in. The additional come in. Um, you know, that, that's just another fact you have to keep keep in mind on how far we think things can move at the federal level. To me, the other wild card here is almost regardless of the election outcome, are we going to see the end of the legislative filibuster? And if you do, that's going to have some really significant impacts. Again, regardless of of the election outcome. So let me stop there, and I'm sure we can get more into those issues as we move forward. Perfect, thank you. All three houses in play. And then uh, one thing I hadn't thought about in our preparation for this, which is how the federal, the results at the federal election uh, level will affect the states and the state's response and the risks that creates. Elizabeth, the world may look totally different to you. Tell, tell us um, what you're watching and what you see the range of possible outcomes to be. So um, like Marty, uh, I, we're following closely these state-by-state state numbers that we see. You know, the horse race numbers on the presidential race really don't mean a lot. Um, but what matters is, is where we are on specific states. When you look at those battleground states, Arizona, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, um, you know, right now, uh, Biden is, a, is ahead and I think all of those states or almost all of them. And we're also watching closely on those Senate races. I, I don't think the House really is in play. I think 
the act, you know, the focus is going to be the presidential and then and the Senate. Um, and again, in the list of those battleground states, Colorado, Arizona, Maine, New uh, North Carolina, Iowa, um, you know, the Democrats are looking pretty strong right now. So those are sort of the numbers that we're watching. In terms of issues and trends that we're seeing, you know, we've been really uh, interested to see how strong the support has been for climate action. Now, pre-COVID, uh, climate change was one of the top two or three issues across all voters. Um, now, the, the economic uh, uh, recession and the public health crisis have obviously impacted that, but it's still very much at the top of the list, mostly um, more so for Democrats, but for younger voters, regardless of party, climate change remains in that top two or three um, issues set. And then the last thing I would say is these equity issues that we're seeing play out across our society are gonna be big factors, certainly in policy development going forward and may have an impact on the elections themselves. Um, racial inequity around um, treatment by the police, uh, the disp health disparities around COVID, those have helped to elevate this issue of environmental justice as well. And so I think all of those are combining, you're gonna see equity lens applied across a range of policy issues. And I think that could be another um, issue that bumps um, climate change in particular to the top of the list if you do see a strong democratic uh, result in November. Elizabeth, let me just um, pose a follow-up question to that because the racial equity and justice issues are so high profile right now. They're uh, absolutely going to affect election outcomes. Can you um, draw a, a, maybe a straighter line for our audience about how that can impact uh, climate action and, and explain some of the racial and, and um, the environmental justice issues and how they could play in from your perspective? Sure, so there's a couple of different um, ways that these, that these issues intersect. Um, first of all, uh, communities of color are traditionally in areas with higher um, pollution levels, with worse uh, air quality. And, and so climate change uh, policy reduces uh, carbon emissions, of course, it usually reduces other emissions as well. And so that's gonna increase and improve air quality for these um, communities of color. Um, in addition, you have uh, some of the um, uh, coastal communities are, are very much um, impacted by uh, climate change. Um, there's a whole phenomenon that we're seeing where you have the um, most high income communities right along that coast. And as we've seen um, climate change, they're moving back and pushing back into some of these communities of color and, and, and forcing um, a reorganization of, of the um, geography uh, based on, on climate change. Um, you know, I think there, uh, there are issue, there's, a, there's a strong correlation between climate change and some of the public health issues um, when you, and then you look at a whole range of topics around um, 
uh, forest fires, natural disasters, all of those um, have bigger impacts of on these communities of color. So um, we see this as uh, not just bumping um, climate change to the top of the list, but also impacting what solutions are most likely to gain um, traction. Uh, I think that there's gonna be environmental justice lens to any kind of climate change solution to ensure that all communities are benefiting from um, the uh, economic and environmental improvements that climate change solution would provide. Good, thank you. Yes, I've definitely seen the topic of environmental justice and racial equity moving to the top of the, the climate conversations. And so that's going to be another interesting unknown in, in political outcomes. So, so Marty, let's turn to how the business community is thinking about uh, particularly an energy and a climate agenda in these elections. Does your organization, do your members push for um, positions regarding um, federal policy outcomes? How, do, how does your membership look and think and talk uh, about energy and climate with regards to the election? Sure, well, I mean, I think at this point, <clears throat> whether it's directly related to the elections or just it's more, how do we see the, you know, the, the world evolving? Okay, so I mean, you know, Ben made uh, mention to you, your, your previous uh, conversation on, on you know, investor-driven decisions. You know, um, there's no question that almost, and that's another thing I would say, regardless of the election outcome, those types of, of, of pressures won't end. Investors, shareholders, the public, you know, policy or you know, policymakers, uh, and, and the companies themselves. I mean, many of these issues, whether it's the, the equity issues that uh, Elizabeth spoke about, or now you're getting into climate, sustainability, energy, I mean, they're CEO level issues that, that, you know, that, that are being focused on. But I guess specific to your question, um, you know, I joined the chamber last summer uh, at, a time, at a time, you know, right after it did, you know, it, it's, its position on climate now is Yes, it's real. Yes, we're contributing, and inaction's not an option. So now the obvious question is: Okay, so what? What now? To me, you know, the good news is that what we've been able to do from that is to draw in the broad membership of the Chamber of Commerce, not just our energy uh, companies, but um, whether it's tech and financial services or you know everybody that now has a, has a stake in this because of those those other external pressures to identify where is it we, that we can lean in. So areas on um, uh, technology and innovation. You know, we very, we got together with a broad coalition and I believe EDF was part of that as well. We had, it was a, one of those great times where you could see so many different groups who don't always work together saying, we've got to get behind this bill and let's, you know, let's move this forward. Yeah, I, I'm still hopeful. I know it's a it's it, it's looking more long shot as to whether that bill is able to, to to get back on the tracks. But I would also say that you know, as part of that, what what derailed it in the Senate was a bill on on phasing phasing down HFCs, another bill that the chamber supports, and we've been leaning in with the committee trying to find the consensus until we can put that issue aside and get to the you know the bigger innovation, um, resilience issues. In every infrastructure bill that's up there, especially on the water side, but now also on the you know, surface transportation, all the rest, you know, the principles around what do we do to make sure that where we're spending money, we're thinking about pre-disaster mitigation. We're looking at how to make the systems more resilient. So broad consensus around those issues. 
to be blunt and to be honest, the one area where we don't have consensus is on policy. And so we're talking about, you know, a price on carbon, you know, got a very broad membership. We don't yet have a, yep, this is the way we think it needs to be done. We clearly companies that are very supportive, others that have, have legitimate concerns about what it will do to their business models. But all of that together says, you know, that this isn't going to stop regardless of the, of the election outcome and something we, we are building on now and know that we need to be leaning in as the business community and the individual companies, obviously, to help make progress uh, you know, in, this, in this area. Thank you. And, and uh, one of our audience members, and I concur with this, um, is impressed with the, the pivot the Ch U.S. Chamber has made on climate and, um, and thanks you for your leadership with that, Marty. So thank you for that. Um, so Elizabeth, let me turn to you because um, I imagine that EDF has federal policy hopes for 2021. And you're probably <laughs> thinking of that not just in a Democrat trifecta, but under different scenarios. What, what, are, you, what are the range of outcomes that um, you hope for? And what are the range of outcomes we could see that might even go, uh, I imagine there's ideas that go much farther than EDF's stated positions. Well, thanks, Tisha. Yeah, I, we certainly have been doing a lot of thinking about where we might be um, in, the, in January of 2021. But uh, it's always a little dangerous to um, predict these things, uh, especially these days. Um, if somebody had told me in January I was gonna spend three months in my dining room uh, fighting for Wi-Fi capacity with my three teenagers, I probably wouldn't have believed it. Um, but anyway, uh, so let's, let me just say that EDF has a North Star policy. We believe that we need an economy-wide price on carbon in order to drive emissions down and reach 100% clean economy by no later than 2050. That is our North Star. And I think that the outcome of the election is gonna have a big impact on what the path looks like to get there. What are the most likely um, uh, avenues um, coming up over the next, you know, during this next year? So um, let me talk about a couple of scenarios. First of all, if we see a democratic trifecta, um, I still think that, there, that there's, gonna, there's still a couple of different paths that we could see. One is um, if we're still struggling uh, with a slow economy, which I think is possible, um, I think the new president is likely to have a big jobs initiative and we would want to, um, be working with the new administration and Democratic Congress to make sure that um, any kind of economic stimulus package includes provisions for clean energy, um, maybe uh, bolstering some provisions that address these uh, racial equity issues and create jobs and economic stimulus and that can reduce emissions. Maybe something along electrification or um, a clean energy standard. Um, but I would also say, Marty made an excellent point earlier in this conversation about the potential for an elimination of the legislative filibuster. And I think that depending upon how that plays out, there could be an even broader range of policies that could move through the Congress and end up on the president's desk um, you know, in, that first, uh, in that first legislative sprint that we often see at the beginning of an administration. I also think, that if you have a Biden administration, regardless of what happens in the Congress, 
Um, there's going to be a big push on the regulatory front and on the administrative front. So um, uh, the Obama administration put in lots of um, rules and regulations that many people on this call are familiar with. Um, many of those rules are either have either been rolled back or in the process of being um, eliminated. And I think you're going to see um, another round of that to reinstate some of those uh, environmental rules, clean cars or um, the mercury and air to toxins, um, you know, methane rules. So I think that there's going to be a lot of activity under a Biden administration, regardless of where we are on, um, in the Congress. If we have a Trump reelection, um, you know, I think that EDF is probably sees itself in somewhat of a defensive posture on the regulatory side. But on the legislative side, you know, we are still optimistic that there is some a bipartisan um, collaboration that can happen. Marty talked about a couple of the policy ideas um, in this space that the chamber supports and many of those EDF supports. We uh, were um, uh, endorsed the um, Manchin-Murkowski bill. We've been very forward leaning on some of the resilience ideas. A CCS is something that EDF has worked on. Um, we don't see those as going quite far enough, but um, it is also the case that if we have a Trump presidency, those might be areas where we can find um, common ground. And then the last point that I would make is, again, I agree with Marty, that regardless of what happens in the election, investor pressure, consumer pressure, employee pressure, work at the states, all of that is going to continue. And, um, you know, I think EDF's plans are to continue to engage on these um, on these uh, on these other pressure points and work on um, investor pressure in particular uh, to ensure that companies are being responsive to those who invest in them and those who work for them and those who buy from them. That's great. Thank you. The so this imagine this range of action from a huge um, jobs initiative that has clean components, a clean energy standard, bipartisan collaboration. You're saying a lot, a lot of things that um, create plenty of room for common ground. And later I'll come back to the idea of what you'd like to see go farther. Cause I want to go ahead and keep going to the end of that, that spectrum. Um, but you, you left a lot of room uh, for, for Marty. I would love to hear what you see. And do you have any more, do you see a spectrum that has more gloom and doom in it <laughs> at all? <laughs> just, just curious. <laughs> gloom and gloom. Well, okay, yeah, you know, I, I, I think where the, uh, where the, where the opportunity lies here, you know, the, 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 the external pressures we're seeing, and I, I forgot to mention Elizabeth was, was exactly right. Workforce is another major pressure the companies are feeling, you know, it's just that, you know, they're having to respond to that as well. Um, but I do think that, you know, so let's just say if, if, if it is a, a democratic administration, you know, coming in in January, um, I, I agree. I don't think there's any question. We're still going to be focused on economic recovery. And, and what, what do we have to do in that space? Um, but again, I'd say that that presents huge opportunities. Number one, I'll say I, my background and, and I think we've got to be able to, to acknowledge and understand the critical role that energy is going to play in, in, in facilitating and enabling that economic recovery. Energy of all kinds. But it doesn't mean, you know, Here's the chance to turn one off. Regardless, we're not going to be able to switch and turn everything to renewables tomorrow. Renewables have an enormous opportunity and role to play here. Um, so, how best do we do we fit all of this together? I think 
you know, the we will see um, uh, more again leaning forward on on, on the on the infrastructure packages. I, I mean, right now, I think the on one hand, the House bill that was just uh, you know they released a language earlier this week that had service transportation and all kinds of you know clean energy and you can on one hand you can say isn't that great they went so far on the other hand you say but it's not going to be enacted so what are we doing to try to get something now knowing that these are all things that can be you know addressed later now i don't mean to be doom and gloom about the opportunity to get something done i'm just saying if we can actually get something done in the infrastructure space here because everybody claims to be a champion of infrastructure yet now we're all going to vote for something that isn't doesn't really have much of a chance of getting through the senate or the uh, uh, or signed by the president I think another factor we've got to keep in here, and it's a, I know it's a, it's an issue where there is conflict, but I would say that for, for a, if our country needs to do big things quickly, and this can include all, you know, build out of renewables, build out of the, you know, grid modernization, uh, but also including, you know, the, the extent to which we need additional pipeline infrastructure, whatever the infrastructure might be, we've got to have some permitting reform and some modernization there. We can you know, disagree on exactly how that should be done. We've obviously taken a position there and others, uh, others have as well. But I think that for the longer term, we can't just see every, every type of infrastructure project mired down for years before they even get a yes or no or in, or in the courts. And I, think, I hope there's some common ground there because administrations going back at least three presidents have all put you know, proposals forward to try to streamline permitting. Uh, and we've had some good good movement on Fast 41, what have you. So there, there's some areas where I hope, regardless, we've, we've got uh, some consensus that we can build on. Great. So um, we, we have a, uh, we're starting to get some audience questions, and I encourage the audience to participate. Um, a, a really good question, which I'll, I'll pose to you first, Elizabeth, because this is the, the quandary of the oil and gas industry. So I'll give you a chance to talk about what going further would look like. And, and then with the question of if there was a price on carbon, do you think it's possible for the environmental community, for the public, to get on board with the idea of a carbon neutral oil and gas industry. So is, is, the, is the opposition to oil and gas baked into it being a fossil or is there a pathway um, that could ultimately lead to oil and gas industry support? Well, that's a really interesting question, Tisha. And I think that um, I would answer it this way. The environmental community is not monolithic and um, you know, Marty talked about all the different constituencies that he has within the chamber. And um, I think that for uh, EDF, our, our, our focus is on emissions. Our focus is on uh, reducing carbon emissions in a way that, that addresses climate change. Um, and it, we have been focused on a net zero uh, goal for 20, no later than 2050. That doesn't mean that we're eliminating fossil fuels. And that doesn't mean that we are 100% um, renewable. Other organizations have that goal. That isn't, that, that isn't the target that EDF is, is shooting for. So um, I think you asked if the environmental community can get on board with a carbon neutral oil and gas uh, industry. I probably can't speak for the entire env environmental community. Um, but I would say that our focus is on reducing emissions and getting to net zero. 
That's great. Thank you. Marty, how are um, your member companies thinking about these net zero goals? And I imagine you have the full range of participants from no fossil to net zero to business as usual. Um, how are your companies thinking about this? And do you see a path to public support for oil and gas companies in a carbon tax or a, a net zero um, aspiration? Well, I, I do. And I, and I certainly hope that we, we can you know, get the broader public there as well. I mean, I think to, to build on what Elizabeth was saying, I think our, this is one of my, I'll on my soapbox for a moment on just general policy, almost no matter what, what we're talking about. You know, as with the hyper-partisanship we have, everybody goes to their corner, instead of focusing on what's the outcome we're looking for. And if we can all say that what we want to be able to do is meet the, meet the energy demands here in the U.S. and globally, because this, you know, this is a global issue, with fewer emissions and a lower carbon footprint, well, what's the best way to get there? You know, in, in a way that also allows us to continue with economic growth and, and deal with you know, equity issues in, 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 our, in communities where we live. So I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful you know, that, 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 we can, uh, that we can do that. Um, so, I mean, the quick answer is yes. I, I think there is, there is hope, uh, and, in fact, and there has to be. Um, as I said before, this, the, the, you look across our members, you've got everything from, and, and just talk about the GEI members for a moment, which, you know, fossil power generators, what have you. Well, almost all the power generating companies have, have set out clear goals for where they want to be on emissions by 2030, and, and then they, you know, set goals for 2050. You know, the truth of the matter is that they know pretty, pretty clearly how they're going to get to 2030, we don't yet know how we're getting to 2050. And that's not a criticism. That's just, you know, that's part of where we're looking for innovation, technology. How do we make sure that, you know, you have, I mean, some of them are very clearly saying, we're moving more to renewables. We've got nuclear in there as well. And we need natural gas in there to be able to help, you know, bridge, bridge between all of this. So we can have the honest conversation on what is it we need to meet that outcome that I, that I outlined before the demand with fewer emissions and lower carbon footprint, and let's figure out the best way to get there. You may have some, you're going to have some CCS in there, uh, advanced nuclear, uh, and clearly renewables are going to be a big, big part of that as well. Great. Thank you. I want to weave in an audience question with one that I have for you, Elizabeth, which is um, EDF has been extraordinary in its willingness to work with the oil and gas industry and find common ground. And I would say push the industry um, to be its best self. Um, what, what are ways you think oil and gas industry executives can be preparing for that D trifecta? I'll just take that extreme. What are the activities that they should be doing now? Is dialogue enough? Um, is rapport building enough? Um, and, and where do you see common ground that, that you're, you're, getting, you're getting traction working with the oil and gas industry? Well, I agree with what Marty said about um, the acute polarization that we're seeing. And the reality is that um, there are many uh, Democrats in Congress that have a knee-jerk reaction to be opposed to the oil and gas industry. And that's a hurdle for people on this phone call and people in the industry. Um, that having been said, I do think that there are Democrats on the Hill that are, you know, a lot, you know, have common interest with the um, oil and gas companies. There are people who have worked with the industry, who have um, ties in their states and districts to the industry. And so 
I, I think there is definitely opportunity there. Um, I would say a couple of things. I think dialogue is important. And I think that keeping those lines of communication open all the time, not just when the trifecta D hits, but you know, through good times and bad is important. I think that it's important that um, uh, oil and gas companies are leaning forward where they can. You know, for us, I, we look at methane, uh, methane emissions flaring. Th these are no regret policies that I would think oil and gas companies should embrace because th they are um, good for the environment. They are a way to build bridges with, um, with people on both sides of the aisle. And they're gonna put, put these companies in a stronger position regardless of the outcome of the election in November. And, and that's part of the goal, right? It's to find uh, politically durable policies that don't get buffeted around uh, every time there's an election. Marty referenced that the election cycle is different from the business, you know, the business planning cycle. And so I, I think the goal should be to find those places where there is common ground. And I think methane is a, is a good example of that. Um, so that you can find some uh, places that people can have a, have a reason to engage and, and to be collaborative. I love that idea of thinking now about politically durable, both relationships, collaborations, and then policy solutions. Marty, with your, with your wide array of member political and business uh, needs, what are you, either advising or what are companies uh, in your membership doing to prepare for a D-trifecta now um, so that they are in a position to try to, to craft some of these bipartisan durable solutions? Well, in, in my experience, I, I'm happy to say that no one is just waking up today and saying, should we be preparing for this? Um, you know, th this is something that you know, has been on their agenda for, for quite a while um, and for years. And, and I guess as evidence of that, I would say that even during this administration, the popular perception is, you know, okay, this administration is giving industry everything at once, but that same industry has continued to partner with groups like EDF. The same industry on individual companies are making commitments on how they're going to reduce emissions or on, on, on new sustainability uh, programs that they, that, they, that they have out there. I think this is a, you know, this is a movement and an evolution that, you know, isn't going to isn't going to stop. <clears throat> Clearly, there are specific policy issues there where we're going to continue as you know, the, the, the regulatory battles we've been having during this administration are the same ones we had in the previous administration and the one before that and the one before that. As we've seen, you know, whether, whether one side gets more of an ear of the administration, that's kind of normal operation. I, I do agree with Elizabeth that if we have the uh, a, a, D, a D trifecta, we are going to see some snapback on, on on actions that have been taken by the current administration. Not a surprise. And I think again, industries and individual companies have had to be thinking about how are they positioning themselves, not just politically in the I got to work on both sides of the aisle. I've got to be able to, you know, with their workforce, you know, with their investors and shareholders, with the public, at the communities where where, where they operate. So those are all critical pieces of our being able to, uh, yeah, I'm going to continue to be a little Pollyannish here and say we can get to a point where we say, no, let's all agree. This is where we want to be. Let's figure out the best way to get there, that, that it's a win-win you know, for everyone involved. 
That's great. Thank you. And the so there's one uh, earlier comment that each of you made before that I want to um, push a little farther on. And Elizabeth, I'll give you the first shot at this, which is um, uh, both there's the potential for uh, not having the filibuster. So you have a, a bigger range. I always imagine in a D trifecta, there's that two years of just trying to push everything through. And then there's the, the other comment that you've both made about moderate Democrats. So, so, so sort of maybe tempering force, which I don't think you meant vetoes in the White House is my guess. But could you talk a little bit about how you're thinking about in a D trifecta, what the moderating influences are or the absence of them? And, and this is just to, to further tease out that, that spectrum of outcomes. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, uh, EDFs, governing philosophy has been to have durable policy solutions, you should have bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. This is something that we have uh, been, has been a core of what EDF has worked for, 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 for a good long time. So I, I would say that uh, I agree that, that if we have a, um, if we have 51 Democratic senators in January, those are gonna include senators from more um, purpley states. They're gonna be more moderate um, Democrats. Um, we would hope that there's still, even under a 50 vote scenario, it's not necessarily a straight up 51 votes, all Democrats with no Republicans. We would hope that there could be a policy that was developed that had uh, maybe doesn't meet that 60 vote threshold, but does have some bipartisanship associated with it. Um, but yes, I, I, you know, the, the, um, I think that we are wanna look for pragmatic, durable solutions. And that is going to mean um, solutions that take care of labor and make sure that workers are protected, that communities that are going through transition uh, are, get the resources that they need to be successful. It addresses these racial equity issues, and it and it and it also addresses the dramatic need that we need that we have to drive emissions down. And so, I believe that there is there is ground here to have a policy that is not way off on one side or the other in terms of the politics but that can address all of these issues. And frankly, that's where it's gonna to need to be, even if you have a democratic trifecta. So th th that's the way that we think about it within EDF. I, I would also you know, reinforce what Marty said and, and what we've talked about today. There are other forces besides the federal government, including the states, including workers and employees, including investors, including customers. You know, those are, are gonna continue. And those are maybe even bigger factors than they have been in the past. So we can think that that's going to continue to be a force that's pressing on this process. That's really interesting. And, and Marty, when, when you give us your thoughts on, on that uh, trifecta outcome, um, I'm going to ask you to also include, there's been a tremendous momentum in the last two years on conservative support for a, carbon, a price on carbon, a revenue neutral price on carbon, including a number of oil and gas companies. And so I'm interested in how that plays in because I'm heartened, Elizabeth, by this idea of bipartisan support and finding middle ground and creating durable 
uh, path forward. So I'm, I'm curious, Marty, how you see that, that factor playing in as well, knowing that your membership is not on, on one page. Right, right. Well, well first, let me just say, I, uh, you know, concur with, with Elizabeth on the need for you know, durable, durable policy and, and, and political um, uh, solutions here. So I mean, one of the, uh, I'll say, uh, just staying focused on the Senate for a moment, as an aside, on a personal level, I consider myself an institutionalist and I hope they don't get rid of the filibuster regardless of who's in control, okay? So it's not, not a party thing, but setting that aside for a moment, um, it, the Climate Solutions Caucus that's working now, I, mean, I, I think there's real hope with that group. I mean, we're, we're supporting the Climate Solutions Foundation, which is again, again, help, helping that group come, you know, come together. I've been able to, I've been involved in some of the conversations that those senators have had. And it's, it's, it's like a relief to actually listen to senators from different parties have a meaningful, substantive conversation where nobody's posturing. You know, it's not like a hearing anything. So it gives me, it gives me some hope that we can, you know, we can find some areas, not just in this area, but, you know, broader policy as well. Yeah, yeah. as Elizabeth said, it's not just gonna be 51 votes across the board you are going to be able to see some, you know, some movement, some movement across those lines. Your question about the price on carbon and the, the conservative support it's had. I, I mean, on one hand, it, well, I guess what I'd say, it hasn't translated yet into support on the Hill, right? On, on, on the conservative side. I think there's some, some players up there that are, that are taking it seriously and, 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 and looking at, but, that we just don't, the, the consensus isn't there. And clearly, as I said at the outset, at the Chamber of Commerce, we don't have consensus among our members on how best to do that. But I do think that, um, um, you know, Congressman Graves has been serious about his work and I think they've done, had, you know, done some, some thoughtful things. We're not, we're not yet at a point where we can all, you know, say kumbaya on anything, but I think there's at least some uh, opportunity uh, as we get past the election to pick up on some of these areas where we do have some consensus and try to drive forward with some bipartisan support. Mm, that's great, thank you. So while there isn't um, a clear path of support um, in Washington, Elizabeth, this is a question from the audience. Do you think the state and region, regional carbon policies, so Reggie, the Transportation Climate Initiative in the Northeast, cap and trade in the Northwest. Do these provide proof of concept? Do they build momentum? Are they useful markers on, on the path to federal legislation? Sure, I think every time we have a, um, a, a regime that's moving forward, that's driving emissions down, that's using these market mechanisms to um, you know, drive uh, the, the most efficient solutions to the goals that we're trying to accomplish, Absolutely, they're super helpful. And as you know, Reggie has expanded a bit and, and it may expand more. So yes, uh, they are very helpful. Um, we need an economy wide, you know, we, we need a global solution here. Um, I don't mean global, the whole planet, but I mean, we need a national, federal, economy wide solution. We're really gonna meet the, the challenge of climate change. So absolutely, these smaller regional efforts are helpful. They provide a model for how we can use markets to drive emissions down. Um, but it, 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 it is, it's, not, it's not sufficient to meet the reductions that we need to, to face the challenge that we have in front of us. But I think it does um, 
point to ways that you know states can engage and have engaged and you know i think we're going to continue to see activity at the state and local you know state and local regional level great so i want to give you each chance to give your your final remarks and i'll, I'll prompt you with a question but you can weave in whatever you like <laughs> your closing thoughts um so it, 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 there are probably a number of oil and gas industry executives on uh the call today who have been just overwhelmed with the logistics of a price collapse, the, um, the economy, the pandemic. And now they are turning their attention back to uh, elections. And um, what, are, what, what are things that um, leaders and companies, what are things that they can be uh, and should be doing now to engage uh, and build, uh, build mitigation into, into their strategy with everything else they have going on because I like both of you am an optimist and there has been so much common ground articulated today that it seems like there's a lot of room uh, for movement from companies. So Marty, I'll, I'll start with you. What do you, what are your recommendations to leaders who are returning their attention to election outcomes? Yeah, well, it's, it's, to your point, it, it's been one hell of a year uh, and even just the last few months from the, for, for the oil and gas industry and the uh, individual companies have really had, a, it's one of the more difficult we're a boom and bust cycle industry, but this has been a, a, a pretty difficult one. And I think we, we, ha we haven't seen all the fallout from it yet. <clears throat> but aside from that, I think this is, you know, companies need to continue, as we mentioned before, what, what they were already doing. They, you know, they, you, you, they've got to be leaning in with their, with their workforce, with the communities where they are, and with, you know, the broader policy, obviously investors and shareholders that, that have been such a, such a major, major factor here. But where I think the, the, the opportunity they, they have is, is with the economic recovery that's coming along here. They, you know, they've got to be able to lean in and show that uh, um, yeah, their absolutely you know, essential nature, their essential role in being able to bring the economy back and, and, and now build on that and say, and here's how we're doing that in a responsible way. And it, it almost gives, an, it, it gives a platform to elevate the work they've been doing in the sustainability area and emission reductions and all the rest. So take this opportunity to say, not only are we helping to put, you know, all these people back to work, not just in our industry, but, but throughout the economy, but here's, here's what, how we're doing it in, in a way that is more socially acceptable. And I'm careful in, the, in those words there, but uh, um, yeah, so, so that it, it, take more credit for it. Right, lead, lead into the recovery in the ways that our stakeholders, investors, um, and leaders want to see. Great, thank you. Elizabeth, what do you think? Uh, well, I certainly agree we are ha we've had quite, quite the year in 2020 with um, multiple major disruptors coming down the pike and the election is potentially another one. Um, so my answer is not that different actually from Marty. I think that companies should be leaning in. They should be finding those policies that they can support. They need, there needs to be ongoing dialogue with organizations, hopefully like EDF and with um, a bipartisan group of uh, stakeholders and decision makers, both in the Congress and at the state level. Um, my view is that, um, uh, we, we want to build, the, we, we don't want to just go back to the economy that we had, but the economy that we want. 
And that, that should be a cleaner economy, a, a more efficient uh, industry. And that means um, figuring out what the investments are that companies can make now to get to where we need to be and not just back to where we were. So that would be my, um, <laughs> my vision of, where, of how to um, look at the next six months or so. Great, thank you. So to all of our participants, um, oil and gas leaders who are on this call are oil and gas leaders who are thinking about the future, who are thinking about climate, who are thinking about a variety of election com uh, outcomes. So I commend you. Um, Elizabeth, you started by saying you, you wouldn't have imagined a year ago you'd be sitting in your living room. I wouldn't have imagined a year ago I would be on a webinar with one of the executives of, of one of the leading environmental organizations in the US and an executive from the US Chamber of Commerce having a, a conversation about election outcomes and climate with so much common ground, so much optimism and so much emphasis on enduring bipartisan solutions. So if everyone didn't leave this conversation feeling more heartened about the future, then, um, then I would be surprised. So I wanna thank you both for being extraordinary leaders who are, have worked your whole careers to create this kind of uh, soil where we can get future things done that will be enduring and will be collaborative. So thanks to our audience and thanks to both of you. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Marty Durbin and Elizabeth Gore for taking the time to share their perspectives on upcoming federal elections in the U.S. and how that can impact a risk to oil and gas companies, particularly in the context of interest around climate. I would like to know what you think about what you've heard here. So please visit our podcast website at energythinks.com podcast and tell us. You can subscribe to Energy Thinks on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment and give us a rating. Thanks for listening to Energy Thinks. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.